Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor, and I am in studio with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hey. And his right-hand man, Pastor Sean Richards. Yo. Our in-house Bible answer experts and all-around great brothers in Christ. Uh, we are live streaming from Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And this is A Reason for Hope. This is a uh, weekday Bible answer program where you, our live stream audience, can engage with us ask questions about the Bible, application, interpretation, and whether or not Christianity is true, as well as comparative religion. So if you have questions that uh, have sort of bewildered you or have maybe helped you uh, or have caused you to maybe have some doubts, whatever it might be, we want to um, help you. We want to take what we have taken the time to study and learn uh, because we as a church believe that Christianity is true, objectively true. And it's not a mental crutch, and we're not here because we were raised in a Christian families or anything like that. We, we believe that it's true and that there are good reasons for believing that it's true. Not only that, but that um, the Bible has everything pertaining to life and godliness. So if you have a question uh, that you'd like to have answered about how to uh, specifically apply a, a piece of, of Scripture to your life or how to interpret it, please engage with us. And there are multiple ways for you to be able to do that. You, of course, can uh, join us on our social media platforms as we live stream. You can join us on Facebook. Uh, and, and what you'll do is you'll just join the live stream and use that comment box to leave your questions. You can also join us on YouTube. Uh, we live stream to both those platforms simultaneously. And if you're one of those folks that just doesn't want to have a Google account or a, a Facebook account, you can also join us right uh, at our website. So if you go to our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, uh, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and just go to our homepage and click that Watch Live tab, um, you can not only watch all our services as well as this program, but there's a comment box where you can leave comments, questions, even a lifty little prayer button. So if you have something that's weighing heavy on your life and you would like us to pray for you, then feel free to take advantage of that. <clears throat> we also uh, have a mobile app, so if you want to be more a part of our community, if you are even someone who has attended here in Tucson and, and been on our campus, I'd encourage you to check that out. Uh, you can download it from the Apple or Google Play Store and uh, just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, look for that little dove icon and you can download our app. You can uh, not only use a really nifty digital Bible that it comes with, where you can leave notes and highlight specific passages, but you can go into our sermon archives. We are a church that teaches uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and book by book. So if you want to, let's say, go through a study of the book of Genesis, there are archives of us teaching through the entire book. So I'd encourage you to check that out if that's something that would be of interest to you. There's also a community calendar, several in-home studies, studies on campus. We have our Wednesday night Oasis service where we are currently going through the book of Ezekiel. And of course, our Sunday morning services, which are at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings, we are currently going through the book of Acts. So I would uh, encourage you to check those out if you want to use the app to live stream. If you want to leave a question for a reason for hope on this broadcast, uh, you can do so if you want to do so a, a little more discreetly. Uh, just use our Gmail account, which is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. And I'd encourage you to also follow our senior pastor on X, formerly Twitter. And his Twitter handle or his X handle is at ScottR4H. That's at ScottR4H. And if you want, you can also leave questions there. So you can engage with our senior pastor on the Twitter, Twitter webs if you so desire. Uh, before we get to your questions for today, we're going to take a moment to pray. And we have a little uh, interesting uh, prophecy update. Sean, would you be so kind? Right here. Yes. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well. As our prayer is every morning and every day and every broadcast. Let your word be what people take away from this. And thank you that we have the honor of being a conduit of it. Allow us to relate your word not only on the basis of mercy, but certainly including that. Let your power be shown here today as well as in and through our lives, not only in overcoming our sin, but allowing us to reflect your character in ways that wouldn't be possible otherwise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey Amen. Well, um, somewhat of a, uh, a personal uh, 
event happened to me today uh, that I do believe has uh, direct prophetic implications uh, for everybody that I think is uh, listening to this program. Uh, a man uh, that I considered to be uh, like uh, my second father, uh, Jack Burns, uh, passed away early this morning uh, when I got the call from his wife, Diane. Uh, it was uh, really an amazing uh, account of how uh, Jack uh, left this world. When I say he's like a second father to me, he was a guy who uh, literally uh, paid uh, the tuition for me to go through seminary, uh, just uh, an amazing guy. Long, kind of complicated story, but the, the bottom line uh, is that uh, he always treated me as uh, part of the family. Uh, we were able to uh, meet up again after uh, kind of a hiatus in the relationship uh, for a number of years. A while back, he and his wife, Diane, attended the church until uh, his health failed. Uh, he's uh, been on uh, dialysis uh, for his kidney condition for the better part, I think at least three years, three times a week. Mm -hmm. And uh, oftentimes uh, he would ask uh, me the question, we would get together. Uh, you know, I don't know why I'm still here. Uh, you know, why doesn't God just take me home? And, mm -hmm. you know, I would say, I wish I had uh, a uh, easy answer for you on that question or something that was uh, straight from heaven, but God's not giving me any prophetic insights at this point. Uh, evidently, you've still got a story to tell for the glory of God. And, you know, I think uh, during those times uh, where, you know, he had to make the decision. If he went off dialysis for two weeks, he would have passed away. And, and yet he continued to go because he really made the decision that he was going to trust God. He realized he didn't see, you know, the, the whole picture of things. And so continued uh, to go to his dialysis treatments. Well, uh, according to his wife, Diane, who called me early this morning, uh, Jack got up and uh, went through his usual routine. He usually got up about four in the morning. Uh, he uh, was on oxygen, uh, got situated uh, in his uh, normal easy chair, and uh, turned on uh, Chuck Smith to, to listen to, as was his habit. He listened to Pastor Chuck. He listened to Charles Stanley. Uh, he listened to David Jeremiah, and he'd also listen uh, regularly to our broadcast here. Well, he sat down in his chair and began to listen to Pastor Chuck, and Diane went in the other room and was doing something. He came back and said something to Jack, and he didn't respond. Uh, kind of shook him, and he didn't respond. Jack called uh, the nurse at the uh, care facility they were at, and she came up and said, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but he's passed. Hmm. And, uh, wow, uh, I can think of far worse ways to depart this world than uh, to be in a situation where you're uh, listening to God's word, uh, you're wanting to hear something from him, and uh, without any struggle, without any pain, uh, simply took his last breath and entered into the next life. Now, I don't know if when he got there, he saw Pastor Chuck and said, hey, I was just listening to you there. I'm sure he's probably more uh, focused on uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, but... Uh, Wow, you know, talk about uh, never knowing what a day was going to bring. I would go over and see Jack and Diane on a regular basis on Thursdays, and it was always such a blessing to me. They always thought that I was doing them a big favor, but uh, boy, the experience in the background and the love for the Lord that both Jack and Diane had, I would come out of there feeling like I was the one who was blessed uh, far more often than the, the reverse. Uh, so, uh, you know, a few things that uh, really been uh, hitting me in all of this. I've been in contact uh, with uh, Jack's daughter, Stephanie, just a really beautiful, beautiful person and dear friend of ours uh, about all of this. And uh, it was so wonderful uh, to know that we have this blessed hope. Uh, I think of uh, Psalm uh, 116 and verse 15, where it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And mm -hmm. uh, I know that God had this all uh, arranged for him and, and boy you know when you think about it of all the different ways that you could go out in this world um, sitting down to listening to a bible study <laughs> a pretty good way to go it reminds me of those uh, mm. those questions we used to be asked in youth group if the rapture happened what would you want to be found doing at that particular time well it wasn't the rapture but uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord so i think it'd probably be a pretty cool thing to uh, be sitting down to take in some significant bible study and then find yourself in the presence of God. 
I, I have to confess that uh, my emotions have kind of been all over the place today on all of this. You know, first it was shock. I could hardly believe that. I was just fully expecting to see him in a couple of days. Uh, then it was a, a sense of uh, kind of uh, loneliness or, or a sense of uh, mourning, I guess, over the fact that uh, that relationship that I valued so much uh, is not going to be there uh, any longer. Uh, but uh, then there was this strange sense of joy that is mixed in there uh, as well. And I, I think this is what the Bible gets at. And if you're a person who has uh, recently gone through uh, the departure of some loved one, I really want to encourage you in all of this. Uh, you know, the Scripture says that we are to grieve, but not to grieve uh, as those who have no hope, like those who don't know God. Uh, we are to grieve in hope because we know that uh, if someone leaves this life, that's not it. Uh, if a person leaves this life and they have faith in Jesus, we know that we will see them again on the other side, and we will see them completely healed, completely glorified. I just love uh, the analogy that the Apostle Paul paints in 1 Corinthians 15 about how the uh, resurrection body is going to be so much more amazing and awesome than anything we can understand. It would be like comparing a shriveled little seed to a full-grown tree. Uh, so uh, what JB looks like right now at this time, I, I can't even begin to comprehend. But a uh, few things, I think, a few life lessons come out of this. You know, Solomon made the observation uh, that uh, wisdom was not to be found in the la house of laughter, but rather in the house of mourning, and uh, the wise will take it to heart. Uh, let's face it, uh, we have no idea when we're going to check out of this life. Life is very precious and very fragile and very unpredictable uh, resource that we have. And uh, the, the best way to make sure we get the most out of life is like Jack, walk with the Lord uh, in, in, on a day-by-day -day basis. I think uh, to the very end, he gave us an example of somebody uh, whose race was well run. You know, the other thing is this, eternity's a long bargain. And if you're out there and you have not made a decision uh, to receive Jesus as your Savior. The, the reason that we can grieve in hope is because uh, we know something. Jesus himself said in John 14 and verse 19, because I live, you will live also. Uh, we don't believe that uh, there's an afterlife. I don't believe I'm going to see Jack Burns again uh, because uh, someone saw light at the end of the tunnel or because, uh, you know, someone uh, communicated uh, with a loved one at Madame Lasagna's tea reading parlor. Uh, I believe that we're going to see our loved ones again because we have no less a person's word on this subject than Jesus Christ. And Jesus not only physically experienced death, dying for us on the cross, but he rose from the dead in a moment of history that can be verified to the satisfaction of any fair inquirer. And so when death comes knocking on our door, when we find ourselves suddenly in the valley of the shadow of death, uh, when death isn't suddenly somebody else's problem in this world. And by the way, statisticians tell us that uh, two people every second on this earth depart through the valley of the shadow of death. Mm. Uh, Got to be ready for it because sooner or later, our number's going to be up. And sooner or later, the people who knew us best are going to be finding themselves uh, really kind of looking back on our lives and, and asking the question, you know, what can I learn from this person's life? What kind of influence did this person have upon my life and my existence? And I'm here to tell you that uh, Jack Burns, because of his simple, straightforward, <laughs> just uh, rock solid, common sense walk with Jesus Christ, has probably been, uh, with very few exceptions, uh, the one of the most encouraging people in my personal walk with God. And so. Uh, JB's crossed his finish line. He's rejoicing in heaven. Uh, I think I look at his life as an encouragement to devote every day of my life to trying to do the same. So I uh, just wanted to share that uh, with you all personally as the broadcast unfolds. And prophecy, predicting the future, here's the future. <laughs> the statistics on death are most impressive. One out of one people die, and that includes you, and that includes me someday. Mm. If the Lord doesn't come for us, we're going to him. And uh, as I've said, boy, you know, I'm to the point uh, where this year I qualified for Social Security, believe it or not. Uh, say I live another 30 years. Say I live to be 95. Uh, well, somewhere in that 30 years, Jesus might come for us at the rapture. I'll see Jesus. 
if I live to be 95, boy, that's a pretty ripe old age, uh, and I pass away, I'm going to see Jesus. But either way, within 30 years, this guy here is going to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ. It only makes sense then to live that way, and I hope you're living that way as mm. well. Wow, powerful. And we're sorry for the loss of a dear brother. Well, he's not lost. I know exactly well, where he is. <laughs> from our human, uh, yeah. <laughs> from our human point of view. Yeah, so. yeah. And I love that passage in Thessalonians that we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. It's, yeah. Well, thank you, Scott, for sharing that. And, uh, you know, we should grieve with one another. So, yeah. Yeah, but uh, grieve with hope. Mm. You know, it's just, uh, boy. Uh, this is one of those times where I find myself saying, you know, I just mm. don't know uh, how people who don't know the Lord mm. do it. It's like what you described yesterday about if we, when we come face to face, that balance between joy and sorrow in that same moment. Yeah. Like being face to face with Christ that, oh my goodness, I'm, I don't deserve this, but here I am. And yet I have joy, but I'm sobbing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Be- beautiful. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, uh, we have a question left over from yesterday. Uh, Mac D wanted to know and was curious as to whether or not in uh, Kings um, chapter 2, 1 Kings, second or is it 2 Kings. Kings? Second Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, there are some quote unquote kids mocking the prophet Elisha, and uh, he's wondering. Were these kids kids or like children or? <laughs> or what gives? Yeah. <laughs> Elisha yeah, thought yeah, some, about his baldness. So, some, yeah. uh, some junior hires uh, made fun of the guy for losing his hair. And uh, well, yeah. I can understand why he liked it. I wish, uh, call yeah. It down fire, but, but so if you make fun I think of Sean prophet, has a better answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those passages that if you spend any time on the internet, it depends on you, A, not reading anything more than what's handed to you by the person who's trying to elicit some sort of emotive reaction. What they'll usually do is include it with emotive terms like kids when that's not what the text says, or murder when there isn't some proactive attempt like Elisha going sickum on the she-bears and so forth. All that we're told that literally within the span of two verses is how many of these people there were, that they were people, and it uses the term youths. In Hebrew, it's yilad, and we'll go more into that significance here in a moment. Yeah. And that, of course, 42 of them did not walk away from the encounter. So assuming it was a total loss, at least that many came out from the city to mock the prophet of God. In a very significant way. Who, according to within the same chapter, will contextualize that quite nicely. Now, when it comes to what the opening passage is, what city did they come out from? You know, we have, uh, you know, gangsters here in Tucson, and they're usually anywhere from 15 to 19 and just talk a lot of smack, not really harming anybody, but certainly not making anybody's day. But if you know that they're from South Tucson, you could say, eh, Let's pay close attention. I don't know if they were cartel kids or just hooligans from the U of A. If, on the other hand, they came from, say, for example, Syria, maybe um, uh, immigrants uh, trying to enlighten our Western culture with the ways of ISIS and jihad, that would be a lot more concerning. So where were these kids from? Well, it says from the city of what? Bethel. Bethel. Now, a Literally. very significant city historically. Yeah, yeah, as far as the Hebrews were yeah. concerned, it was called the House of God, but at this time, geopolitically, it was one of the primary centers, Jezebel, because Ahab wasn't running anything, let's be honest. Jezebel had set up as a center of worship. Well, for, it actually went back farther than that. Yeah. A uh, fellow by the name of uh, Jeroboam uh, was uh, offered by God uh, the, the keys to the kingdom, if you will, when uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam was uh, pretty much showing himself to be uh, a, a, flake, youth. a flake of the first order. Uh, well, Jeroboam got a little nervous over the idea of being the head of 10 tribes, and the other two tribes were down south, and uh, Judah controlled Jerusalem, and the center of Israeli worship was there in Jerusalem. So, uh, you know, Jeroboam's like, oh man, if they go back down to Jerusalem, they're going to see all the stuff that David built and Solomon's temple, and they're going to be disloyal to me. So I know what I'll do. I'll appeal to convenience. We will set up a temple here in Bethel, the house of God. 
Hey, in fact, we're even going to make it easier on these uh, uh, locals to worship by giving them some, uh, well, visual effects. Let's make a golden calf. That goes Just, back to Moses. Yeah, that's traditional. So they set up golden calf worship, and that was the first example of official idolatry took place in Bethel. And from that time onward, Bethel, house of God, became kind of an ironic joke. Yeah, and again, not to get too far off on the tangent of where these kids were from, quote-unquote, but it was originally named Bethel because that's where Jacob, the later renamed Israel, the forefather of the Hebrew people, had his vision of the angel of the Lord, who we would know today as Jesus of Nazareth. So the point being made is this spiritually significant place had been co-opted by corrupt rulers, and were now promoting the worship of the Sumerian god Baal. Now, Sumerian, Canaanite, we'll get more into the semantics of that in a moment, but this particular Baal, which just means Lord in Canaanite, is made a point of emphasis of the rain god Baal, who was a particularly bloodthirsty deity, and he was worshipped mostly, not just through the cutting of yourself, but the systematic persecution and murder, the shedding of blood, of anyone who didn't call him Baal, who didn't call him Lord. And this trend is fairly common across most pagan cultures. The uh, Caesars, for example, persecuted people for making anyone other than themselves Lord. You can observe our other gods, but unless you say Kairos Kyrios in Latin, which is Caesar's Lord, or Greek, excuse me, Koine Greek, then it would be a death penalty. And that's why many Christians in the first three centuries of the Roman Empire were killed, at least as far as our involvement with it. So note that point. They came from a city that was notoriously associated with ritual sacrifice, ritual bloodletting of themselves, and the specific targeting of people of God. And you don't have to take my word for it and say like, oh, well, you know, it's in some vague, you know, Hebrew culture and stuff. It's literally the previous book. In the accounts of the rise of Jezebel, why was she so eager to hunt down all the prophets of God? Why did Elijah not Elisha, who is, we're speaking about here, but his predecessor, Elijah, say, they have killed your prophets. They, speaking objectively, present tense, as if this is still going on and only I am left. Right. What was going on? Baal worship. So note, a, a very intolerant form of paganism, by the way. Which is Funny always how paganism case. tends to go that way. Yeah, but. always the case. <laughs> now, note this point. They came from a city that was associated, literally coerced and co-opted from Jewish culture into Canaanite culture, specifically from where Jezebel was from. She was uh, a descendant of Tyre? Uh, Sidon. Sidon, thank you. So, northern Israel, but definitely not Hebrew. So... They come from a place that's known to kill prophets of God, and a bunch of people come out of that city. Well, how many people? At least 42, assuming it was a total extermination of these youths, which is the word being used. Now, once again, a crowd of at least 42 people. I know if they vote blue, then you can storm the Capitol building. There's no consequence for that. But we've literally seen crowds of maybe even 20 people and would consider it a legitimate threat. Why? because you only need maybe four for a violent attack to gang up on somebody, let alone 10 times that many. Yeah, if you doubt that, check your interwebs. Yeah, so <laughs> when we're talking about these issues, a crowd of 42 people, at least, come out to meet somebody from a place that's known to not like or treat well the somebody of which they're meeting, and what? They say, go up, you bald head, go up. Now, the manipulative people would say, emphasize on bald head. The reason they were cursed by God and these she-bears came after them was because they called him bald. Well, I mean, I understand the sensitivity here, but when we're talking about the No, no, you other... don't understand it yet. I do, but you will. You... <laughs> yeah, I got more hair than I know yeah. what to do with. Yeah. But you what... might. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get it well. Yeah, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> They'd focus on go up, or they, um, you bald head. What about the first two words, go up? Well, again, you don't even have to leave the chapter to understand the significance of what they were saying. In 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 1, <laughs> yeah. not the end of the chapter, which is what we're reading, 1, it says what? That Elijah, Elisha's predecessor, was taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. 
Now, only Elisha saw this, and that was his confirmation, being in on the vision, so to speak, that he was the actual inheritor. There were more than one people in Israel that were speaking on behalf of God, but the head of the school of the prophets, the ones from the tribe of Levi and others, would be responsible for informing and educating people on the word of God and would be available to perform miracles as needed to verify that message to the tribes of Israel. What happened? The predecessor, the head of the prophets, the one that people from this town were seeking to exterminate, heard that Elijah went up into heaven. Now, obviously, they're not going to buy the story. They'll probably come up with their own explanation, but they'll at least, uh, I guess, jump on the slogan and say, oh, yeah, your prophet went up. Well, he's not here anymore. Why don't you go up? You, Elisha, you, his successor, go up. And then to add on the little uh, youth lingo, they also mention his baldness. But here's the point. Go up is a reference to the cessation of life of the predecessor of the prophet from a city that has a divided reputation and interest in the cessation of life of other prophets and a crowd of people numbering, fully capable of leading to the cessation of life of prophets. Now all that we need is clarification on the she-bears. What does the verse actually say? It says that the prophet of God looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord, and it came two female bears out of the woods and mauled of the youths 42. Now, that's interesting, but when we're talking about the mental image, what do we generally think of? The manipulative people would say, well, the bears charged the boys and they weren't hurting him, but they were assaulted and they were hunted down, down to the last man. Well, albeit concerned as far as this not being a normal situation, I'll grant you that. But when I'm talking to someone about the behavior of she-bears. Uh, those of you who watch The Office, Dwight Schrute had a extensive knowledge of bear pattern behavior, right? Uh, for those of you who are amateurs in bearology, mother <laughs> bears aren't generally known to be offensive creatures, even when they get violent. But when they get violent, it's because of one thing, or usually three to four things only, and that's what? Their babies, the cubs. If you come between a mama bear and a cub, there's a reason why they call you a moron on trailheads, because that's going to get you killed. They will do anything and everything to keep their cubs safe. Even a perceived threat is enough for them to maul you. By the so, way, I almost saw that in action in trip to Yellowstone when I was a kid. Yeah, mm. that's, that's another story. Wow. <laughs> yeah, stupid motorist laws are not just for people who drive into flood water. But anyway, when we're talking about this issue, what do bears generally do? They protect their object of interest. So if we're following the theme where the passage doesn't just mention bears, but she bears, it wasn't so that we understood their anatomy. It was so that we understood their pattern of behavior. And it was what? To protect their cub in this situation, which the Lord apparently was able to introduce into their minds as Elijah. So from a city known to be very intolerant, if not aggressive, violent, and persecuting the people of God, a group fully capable and generally known for attacking the people of God, using language that would suggest him being killed, or at least going up into heaven, which, unless you're here for the rapture, is going to involve what? Dying physically saying things that involve a physical death, coming from a place that is more than eager to tell these quote-unquote youths physical death is a good thing if enacted on the people of God, and what? Coming in a sizable crowd to do so. Now, right. it's like a gang. Yes. So here, here's, the, here's, yeah. the imaging, here's the amusing image in all of this. These youths were so persistent in their desire to cause Elijah to go up that it took 42 of them to get mauled to death before what? Before they finally stopped. So even if you don't grant that, even if you pretend, well, you have to just read that verse in isolation despite the charter of the English language requiring us to require more context than less, let's just pretend that all of that is not insane. When we are looking at this text, when we are asking the question, use, what usually gets people to motively react is, they were just kids. You're going to get kids killed, or at least let kids get killed, because they came from a bad town, or because they had a bad upbringing, or because they called some guy bald. Well, again, manipulation aside, what is the term youth translated as? 
And if you look up any Hebrew lexicon, it is used to describe newborns, which, again, um, both of you have more experience with newborn babies than I do. Are they uh, known to gather in groups higher than 15 and to articulate cultural references that would mm. threaten someone's life? Generally speaking, no. They aren't really articulating anything for that matter, yeah. let alone leaving a city. Not if mom has anything to say about it, right? It has also been used to describe young boys. That's kind of the image that's being presented here, but does it fit? Well, what's the other usage? Anyone, and you can look this up in Strong's Hebrew Concordance, anyone under the age of 30. 30. Yeah. Wow. So, youths. Going, ba youths. <laughs> going back to the fallacy behind all of this, it's intent on using emotive language rather than accurately representing what's going on. A crowd of people, even if you don't know the language, generally not well intended, from a city that, according to the previous book, is not known for treating the, odd, the only named individual in this passage well, let alone respecting their right to life. <laughs> but then, with the behavior of the she-bears, with the specificity of the curse of God and its implication, with the fact that all of these things are taking place, what can we know? If I'm going to contextualize this language properly, youths, in any sense in which it's oftentimes presented as inflammatory, doesn't fit. And if my interpretation is nonsense, and you'll see this online as well, uh, people try to say, oh yeah, um, Isaac, right? Uh, the forefather of Jacob. Uh, he married Rebecca when she was six years old. And they will point and emphasize that as calling her young and says, see, she, uh, she was six years old. Well, you read the passage and go, well, yeah, the word described for her as a young maid, a virgin, could describe a six-year-old girl, but what does she do in the situation? In the book of Genesis, we're told that she volunteers her time, effort, and energy to be sent out to go get water for the family. And when she sees Abraham's servant, whose name's not told, but we're pretty certain it was Eli, right? Uh, he says what? Lord, as the one that was called to be Isaac's wife, it's going to be the one that offers to water my camels. We, we want a good girl here, let alone a generous girl. Maybe a strong girl, too, because water ain't light. She waters sufficiently the needs of 15 camels, was it? That's a lot of water, because yeah. camels are some thirsty beasts. Yeah. And what was interesting was when you put all of these images together and say a six-year-old was able to gather, what, over 100 gallons of water to provide for these animals, let alone being sent out at all by the people, you realize that this is a ridiculous scenario and the interpretation isn't warranted. Well, do that as well here. If you read into this passage, the youths can only and will only ever mean someone who's under the age of 12. Well, it's a pretty, I guess, harsh and overreactive point on God's part. But if you actually know something about the language, what does it suggest? These were grown men by modern standards. So if they are saying things that are threatening someone's life, doing some, or um, coming from a place that would threaten someone's life, in numbers that would threaten anybody's life. Motive and means, yeah. Then what does God do? He sends she-bears to protect Elisha's life. But they don't want you to include that. They want to focus on bald head and God's a meanie. Yeah. Hmm. So there you go. So this was the MS-13 of Beth Bethel, and uh, yeah, they had it coming. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Got tired of doing graffiti. He had to chisel it into the... The, the sides of the wall. So. In a way. Yeah, yeah. And if you know yeah. anything about those Baal, Baal worshipers, they were brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you don't brutal. even have to leave the Bible to learn that. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Well, thanks, Sean, for that background. Uh, and hope that was encouraging for you uh, to have a, a good answer for that uh, question, I, Mac D. Pretty yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks uh, for bringing that up. <clears throat> Susie says, uh, I have a 13 year old has a question for you about the rapture so this is a question from a 13 year old thank you mr 13 year old i'm assuming maybe it's a she i don't know but will everything go will everything go to heaven with me at the rapture i understand that my entire body will be resurrected does this include my hair that i cut off and threw in the trash uh, uh, god is going to bring all my dna and particles together what are your thoughts on this thanks gloriana oh it's a 
female. Okay, so. Yeah. It makes yeah. you think, what, when we go to heaven, are we all going to look like Cousin It? Because yeah. I've <laughs> lost a lot of hair over yeah. a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, a, that's a good point. No, well, it's, it's a really good question. And, I mean, there you can see uh, that it's one of those uh, circumstances where the Bible does tell us quite a bit about what's going to happen at the rapture. Uh, it does tell us that we are going to be instantly transformed into a glorified body that God is going to take the uh, dust from which we made, which is transient and falling apart, as we talked about uh, earlier in the program, and transform into a glorious, immortal body that will never know any kind of corruption or decay. That's going to happen instantaneously. Uh, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us. So uh, when uh, we, we know these facts about the rapture, However, we don't know all the facts about the rapture. Uh, you know, I think the Left Behind books uh, kind of got this uh, controversy going uh, with the idea that, uh, you know, suddenly people will be gone and their clothes would be lying there and their hearing aids and fillings from their teeth, <laughs> nothing that wasn't uh, made by God, if you will. Uh, uh, At least as a part of them. As a part of them. It's going to be... Uh, left behind at that point. Well, speculation for sure. Uh, we just don't really know exactly all the details on that. I guess I file this uh, away in a uh, famous uh, statement uh, that Moses made. Uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, hmm. but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may obey this word forever. Uh, there are some things that we won't know about till we get here, but we also know one thing as well. Uh, when even Jesus' enemies looked at him, they said he does all things well. Hmm. So uh, I, I wouldn't worry about that. I think God's got it covered. Uh, how that works out when we get there instantaneously, we'll be able to say, oh my goodness, but uh, understand something. Uh, the us that's going to be there at the rapture isn't going to be like us as we understand ourselves with these physical bodies. I mean, stop and think just for a second if that glorious transformation didn't take place and we go from zero to a blink of an eye uh, uh, you know and suddenly we're caught up in the clouds well these bodies would disintegrate or explode mm. just even from the, the pressure change and so on so God is going to definitely take care of all of those details we're going to meet the Lord in the air we're going to go and be with him in heavenly glory for the seven years of the tribulation and then we're going to return there uh, obviously, if we aren't in a condition with glorified spiritual bodies, even being in the presence of God like that would be very problematic because no human being, no man can see God mm. and live. So we will have the capacity to be able to see the Lord and be able to enjoy him during that time and from that time onward because God's going to handle all the details. Mm. And whether I have my hair back or not will be the least of my concerns, that's yes. for sure. <laughs> yeah, it'll just be perfect. So. Yeah, it'll be enough of you to put on immortality, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. Yeah. Well, we had an interesting question from Yari. Thanks, Yari, for listening in so faithfully. Uh, Yahweh and El, the same God, uh, is Yahweh and El the same God? For some reason, Wikipedia states God and El are the same and they have even given up looking for Moses and say that there is no ethnic distinction between Israelites and Canaanites. Why would Wikipedia do this regarding the history of Israel? Thanks. Well, I, I'm well, the last first, person to defend Wikipedia, but I think you're misunderstanding the point of the article. Well, well, first point I would make is this. Wikipedia is open to anybody to put anything in it. Well, anyone would they approve not, now. I would not <laughs> really look at Wikipedia as the go-to source. Yeah for things biblical. But and if you do, don't look at the articles, look at the references and sources, because that's pretty much its only good purpose now. It'll give a list of sources, if any, to back up what they claim, but that's the only thing you should take. That mm -hmm. being said, to defend what likely you read on Wikipedia, what is the similarity between Yahweh, the name of the covenant God of Israel, right? Yeah. And El, because the word El is used often in the Bible. El, Elo, and Elohim, which is God in a generic sense. Gods, plural, usually referencing two specifically. And gods, plural, three or more. And ironically, whenever God is used in the singular, it's translated from the three or more and used in the singular context. Yeah. But here's the point. 
L is a word that just means, in the most generic sense possible, in English, the god. Yeah. It just means one with power. That's it. Now, there are pagan deities, like the Sumerian uh, accounts of um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, Akkadian myth, Sumerian myths, and Canaanite myths as well that built off of this. They have a chief god that's called El, and the Nabataeans built on that, giving him the name Dushara, the moon god, and um, the term Allah has a lot of implications from him today because that's what that means in Arabic. But when we're just using a generic term El and the personal name Yahweh, it'd be like me saying, well, that's, that's human over there. W which human? Oh, that, that's Sean. Well, that's the difference between that's an L. What L? Oh, that's Yahweh. That, that's the L of Israel. It just means the God. So to say that human and Sean are the same, yes, Sean is a human, but you have to be specific. To say El is Yahweh, you have to be specific because it just means the God. Yeah. Now, there is, and we do have uh, idols even on display in Israel that we got the chance to see of El uh, alongside his wife Astareth, who is worshipped through child prostitution, by the way. And, and then his the little tiny baby Baal. Who we've also <laughs> finished talking about. He was a smaller one. Now, this one. was honest to goodness at an altar they found at Tel Dan. Wow. Yeah, and uh, yeah. What, was the altar impressive? No. No, it was literally just a giant gray rock. That's El. Yeah. So um, yeah. all the fun in that is what it's worth. But the point being made is, again, last to be in defense of Wikipedia, I think that's what you misunderstood. When they make the equivocation, and that's important, the logical fallacy where you use a word with two meanings, and then you use the word right. interchangeably to try to confuse your listeners to think that they do mean the same thing when they don't, L is a word that just means generic god. It can refer, and it has referred, to pagan deities, but to mix up the terms, to cross the wires or the beams, to use the Ghostbusters reference, is going to spell disaster because we know way too much about the God of Israel. And even the little that we know about the Sumerian God El is not the same as Yahweh because Yahweh yeah. claims that there is no God beside him. El is the husband of a goddess by the name of Astareth and has sired multiple offspring, one of which was Baal of the um, Sidonians. But what's important to note about that as well is then they make the leap. And, and I know the scholars you're talking about, Yari, who say, well, there's no ethnic distinction between the Canaanites and the Hebrews. If that's the argument that I equivocate terms regarding their theology, and then I jump way over here to say that their ethnic history is now in question because some of their theology can sound similar to one another. Yeah. How do you know anything? Well, it would be as silly as saying, uh, well, uh, I went to India and uh, they told me about their god, Krishna. Oh my goodness. So Krishna must be the same god that, that Christians worship because they use that same term god to describe him. No. And yeah. now Indians are Americans because some of their theology sounds similar. Yeah. So it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really shake out. You know, um, you know, as far as L being a legitimate uh, word for God, uh, you know, the old law of first mention, uh, we're told in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, Bereshith Barak bara Elohim HaShemayim Wahaaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Elohim is used to describe God. Now, that's the plural of Elohe. The shortened term is El. And we do see El being used in a very legitimate way to describe the true and living God. But the most important thing is that every time we see it used to describe the true and living God, uh, it's either in context describing who the true and living God is or even designated as such. El Shaddai, for instance, means God Almighty. El Elyon means God Most High. Uh, it would have these uh, qualifiers attached to it. El Roy, for instance, means the God who sees me. Uh, so, you know, we would see uh, these things. Where it gets uh, a little complicated is Elohim, which is the plural of this, uh, because it means a uh, person with great power and great authority. Uh, in passages like Psalm 82, 
uh, human beings are referred to as Elohim. The unrighteous judges of Israel being described there. It doesn't say they're gods, but it means that they were responsible, much like God set up for Moses, that Moses would receive a message from God, communicate it to Aaron, and God said, you shall be as God to him. It didn't mean that Aaron was to bow down and worship Moses as some kind of deity, but it did mean that they were going to that uh, Moses was going to be an absolutely impeccable source of God's truth, the the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth mm. from God. So in Psalm 82, this gets a little complicated for some people. They say, "Oh well, see, it says that you know you, know, you are gods. You're all sons of the Most High." So it's saying that human beings can be gods, and cult groups like Mormons will run with that. Uh, but the problem with that is the very next line, it says, yet you shall die like mere men. Uh, in other words, they were given this great responsibility by the true and living God to be his representative in their office as judges of Israel. Uh, we're given the same responsibility as, as believers. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus and him crucified, the apostle Paul wrote. But there are some who will say, well, see, it says that we can be gods. And uh, again, Jesus quotes this very line from Psalm 82 uh, when he's talking about the fact that he was and is the ultimate source of unfiltered, uh, absolutely pure revelation from God. Uh, his critics were saying that he was testifying of himself. He was saying, no. Remember the setup that God gave to Moses and Aaron? Uh, you're looking at someone that is a more reliable source of God's truth than Moses because I don't have to hear it. I mm. can tell you this directly. So, uh, you know, people will build strange doctrines on this and uh, go off and mm. write best-selling popular, popular books and get lots of internet clicks by having a new insight that no one yeah. has ever had before. Mm. And you're not but, a Hebrew um, scholar. It's, it's not, um, <laughs> not, not valid. As far as uh, the idea of the term El being a valid name for God, just like uh, we can pray, you know, God, you're my God, forever I'll praise you. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, we also call God Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we can call God by the Hebrew designations we see here. So there's nothing wrong with that. So it's the meaning of the term, not the actual term itself that creates mm. problems for people. So nothing wrong. Uh, with using the term El, for instance, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, mm -hmm. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which was the uh, uh, Aramaic form of El. Hmm. He called God El at that point. So would that so, be like you and I talking about God in generic terms, but then someone were to clarify and say, well, no, I mean the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now I'm not describing that God, but who God is. Yeah, or the average person you run into out there who says, well, I believe in God. I'm spiritual. Well, well which, which God do you believe in? Uh, do you believe in, uh, you know, I'm dating myself here, but uh, do you believe in God as uh, proclaimed by George Harrison in My Sweet Lord, where you could use all different kinds of names to talk about this one same God, whether it's Krishna, whether it's Hari Rama, whether it's Harry Lewis or someone else like, uh, never mind. But <laughs> the, the, the bottom line, was there was this mentality like it really doesn't matter what you call God you know we're just all talking about the same God but we're not mm -hmm. and right. there, there are important distinctions and he so. makes those distinctions of himself throughout yeah. the Old Testament yeah. and cool. those gods make distinctions of themselves in their own cultures as well <laughs> yeah now so, yeah. we don't have a whole lot of questions left but is there any uh, I heard this and I um, was really there's just, some there on well we have we have yeah. we have another one but I wanted to just while we're still on this topic yeah. um, I had heard some someone talk about the Exodus and that the plagues were sort of God way of demonstrating how these gods were nothing that the plagues weren't just random plagues but they actually were dealing with specific deities within yep. the Egyptian pantheon yep. yeah yeah it was right I, right up uh, into the uh, slaying of the firstborn hmm. because among the slain slain of the firstborn was the son of Pharaoh who considered himself to be deity, and his son would be deity as well. Wow. Uh, so all the plagues... You know, even the plagues of the frogs. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the plague of the frogs, that was the Egyptian god of fertility, because if you lived in the Nile Delta region, you saw that frogs multiplied like there was no tomorrow. Mm. You have know, ever lived around a place where there were tadpoles, you just see them all over the place in the ponds and things like that. So that, oh, well, that's the god of fertility. We want to worship that. Well, they had more frogs than they knew what to do with at that point. Mm. 
And, but uh, God was the one deciding they were to be born, not whatever her name was. Yeah. So the plagues weren't just, I'm powerful, it's I'm the God of all gods. There is none but me. Right. Wow, powerful. Yeah. Well, Annie uh, wanted to know, thanks for the question, by the way, about uh, that, uh, Yari. Annie wanted to know, uh, was talking to a Catholic friend who is expressing some fear of death. And uh, Annie asked, well, do you believe that Jesus is Lord and the Son of God? And she said she did. And Annie communicated that since she was born again, she no longer felt trepidation uh, for death, that she would be present with the Lord. Uh, later, Annie says, I realized that I never spoke of belief in Jesus' resurrection. And I wondered, according to Romans 10.9, addresses belief in the resurrection. However, Luke 23, 40 through 43, doesn't seem to require the same, since the thief... On, uh, on the cross next Jesus could not have known of a future resurrection. So the question is, is the belief in the resurrection require, required for salvation? Uh, two well, problems. Well, First, I, Luke I, 23 does yeah, talk yeah, about the resurrection. Yeah, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Hmm. Um, you have to die and be taken down from the cross to make that bridge, right? Yeah, no one got off of a cross. There's only two documented, quote-unquote, survivals of crucifixion in history. It was in Flavius Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews. They were friends of his. He asked them to be taken down. And by the way, if they were taken down during phase two of three, they weren't fully crucified. The idea of them surviving a crucifixion was, first of all, not on the thief in the cross mind, but even more importantly, when he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does Jesus say? This day you will be with me in paradise. Right. Now that's either telling him, don't worry, the nails will fall off and we'll get this whole, uh, you know. And guess uh, what? I'm going to do a uh, urban renewal project here in Jerusalem and turn it into a paradise. Yeah, and the fact <laughs> that we both look like hamburger helpers is going to be fixed too. No, yeah. they both expected physical death at that point, but him recognizing Jesus as Lord said he was expecting a resurrection for him not for me. And Jesus says, no, for both of us, because you're with me. He couldn't have believed that maybe he was speaking spiritually, like his body would remain. I, I guess it depends on what Jews in Israel at that time believed about life after death. Well, the Sadducees denied it altogether. The mm -hmm. Pharisees took it the same way Second Temple Jews did, Old Testament. It, it's not as complicated as Bart Ehrman wants you to think. <laughs> but uh, when it comes to the gospel, that's just fundamentals. You mentioned Romans 10, 9. If you believe in your heart, or confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, apart from the Luke 23 error, let's back this up. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. So you reject this, you reject salvation. You receive this, you are born again. You are saved. What is that? Verse 3. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and then goes on to list the eyewitnesses. Now, if I recognize that, 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that was a work of the Holy Spirit. God's literally indwelling right. my heart to make permanent residence there. But in that, that affirmation that Jesus was risen from the dead, I have now two options. I could either settle with that, or I could wonder, which usually happens when God indwells your heart, what does this mean for me? If Jesus rose from the dead, I read some of the eyewitness testimonies, what does Jesus say? Because I live, John chapter 11 says, you will live also. I um, 14, am... 14.9, yeah. Yeah. Or 14.19, uh, excuse me. It was at the burial because, of Lazarus. So. Because I live, you'll live also. Yeah. Um, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. Do you believe this? Right. So note that point. That's the gospel. If your quote-unquote Catholic friend associates with the church that affirms these beliefs, they don't, but if the, she does, but she doesn't believe it personally, she's not saved. She doesn't have a quote-unquote deal with God. This is the deal. It's either Jesus' resurrection is proof mm -hmm. and evidence that we all have that same hope through him or bust. Yeah. And is it also very important to note that you're comparing a teaching passage clearly explaining the gospel, whereas this is a historical event 
We don't know all that the thief on the cross knew about Jesus, what he believed about the Messiah to come, if even if he believed in the resurrection or not. Jesus is just addressing this person next to him that acknowledges something, but that's not to say that there wasn't other factors of his knowledge of Jesus that didn't come into play. So again, we shouldn't base our theology on a historical event. We should base our theology on what we believe based on teaching passages of Scripture. Yeah, like for example, when people say, does baptism save water baptism? Does that save, or do you have to be baptized in a specific church in a specific way in order to be saved? The answer is no, and then they'll say, well, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. I don't use that argument, first of all, because it's been used so much that people who are proponents of baptismal regeneration probably have a pre-memorized script to basically run you all the way through scripture to deal with it. What I want to do is go to teaching passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul the Apostle makes a distinction between saving them, telling them the gospel, and baptizing them, even diminishing it, saying, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I baptized any of you. Christ didn't call me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Mm. So, And I think Peter makes it pretty clear that it's the appeal to God for a clear conscience that Not the cleans removal the person. of the filth yeah. of the flesh. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for that question. And uh, uh, any uh, concluding thoughts uh, before we have our last uh, minute of the program? Well, let's uh, want to take a moment to pray for JB's family and as well those of us who are grieving. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good idea. Absolutely. Father, we want to come before you right now and thank you, Lord. For what your word says, that not even death itself can separate us from your love. I thank you, Lord, for the inspiration that we can take from people that uh, weren't by any means perfect, but certainly ran their race with intention and with purpose, like JB did. Thank you, Lord, for Jack Burns, and thank you for all the people's lives that were touched by him. Thank you, Lord, for his faithful desire to tell people about you, even on his Facebook posts. And Mm. Lord, I pray that uh, your word shared, even on those posts, would continue to persist and would continue to minister to people and continue to encourage them in their walk with you. Be with this family. Lord, I pray that they would have a very special sense of not only your presence, but the confidence that we can have that uh, the one who believes in you shall not perish, but have everlasting Mm. life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, and thank you so much, both of you, for being here, and thank you for tuning in. We'll be here same place, same time tomorrow. God bless you, and have a wonderful evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.